Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He was an artist. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to artists. He was a German. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to Germans. He was young, studious, enthusiastic, metaphysical, reckless, unbelieving, heartless. And being young, handsome and eloquent, he was beloved. The Cold Embrace by Mary Braddon Dramatised for radio by Christopher Hawes with Stephanie Turner as Mary Braddon and Jonathan Firth as Yosef. Do you love me? But do you? I swear I do. Here. Come to me. Here. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Do I love her? Yes. Yes, when I swear it to her, by all means I do. Look. Look. The romantic city of Brunswick at rosy sunset. The holy moonlight. This beautiful dream of love. Who wouldn't love a woman at a moment like this? What is it? I was thinking... What were you thinking? My guardian, my uncle Wilhelm. Yes? Let us keep our engagement secret for now. But why? He'd rather you married someone with money. No! Well, yes, I rather think he would. Oh, don't look so sad. I am sad. Don't be. Here. And here. Look. Oh, it's... Let me put it on your finger. It, it's, it's beautiful. It belonged to my mother. A serpent eating its own tail. The symbol of eternity, a tail in the mouth. See how it entwines your finger now? Your slender finger. It's exquisite. I've never seen another like it, not in all the jeweler's shops of all the cities I've seen. And I'd know it anywhere. Even if I were to become blind tomorrow, I could select it from amongst a thousand. Swear we'll always be true to each other. I do swear, forever and ever. Through trouble and danger. In sorrow and in change. In wealth or in poverty. Well, tell your father and my uncle by and by. We are betrothed now, aren't we? Truly. Till death us do part. How could even death part us? I'd come back to you from the grave, my Gertrude. My very soul would return to be with my love. And you, you, if you died before me, even the cold earth wouldn't hold you from me. If you loved me, you'd return to me. 
You'd come and clasp your arms about my neck like you do now. No, no, that's wrong. If I'm up in heaven and at peace with God, I shall be happy. I won't want to return unless... Unless what? Unless I were to kill myself, of course. Then the angels would shut me out of paradise forever. I'd have to come back and haunt the footsteps of the living. What nonsense you talk. You do love me. I swear it. I have received a commission. A commission? To make some copies of paintings for a rich man who isn't quite so rich, and so that he may pretend to his friends that he really does own a Raphael, a Titian, a Guido. I have to go to Florence. So far away? No, I must make a living. Yes. For us. For our future. Yes. The time will soon pass. I'll write every day. The first year of the betrothal is past, and she is alone. The real despair has come at last, and will not be put off any more. The lover wrote often at first, yes, every day, as promised, then seldom. Nowadays, not at all. How many times she goes to the distant little post office. Good morning, miss. Is there any mail for me today? I'm afraid not, miss. No letter from Florence? Uh, no, miss. Surely there must be by now. Uh, no, nothing, miss. I shall come again tomorrow. Whatever you wish, miss. I do wish. There will be a letter from Florence tomorrow. Gertrude, my dear. Yes, father? I miss the boy too, you know. Yes, father. He's become almost a son to me. Yes. But remember, you are only cousins. I know that. I hope your sadness is no more than a cousin ought to feel for a cousin's absence. It is not, Father. I'm most relieved to hear it. My dear... Yes, Father? The English Duke. Yes. You know that he respects you, he admires so you. So you tell me. He is impatient for an answer. I have an answer for him. You would not, I know, wish to make an answer that would displease me. No, father. I cannot in conscience keep him waiting any longer. Nor can you. I am determined in this matter, Gertrude. It will be best for all of us. Better for you, a rich man. The wedding day is fixed. The 15th of June. The date seems burnt into her brain. The date, written in fire, dances forever before her eyes. The date, shrieked by furies, sounds continually in her ears. But there is time, yet. It is the middle of May. There is time for a letter to reach him at Florence. There is yet time for you to come to me. Oh, come to me, my love. To take me away and marry me in spite of father... In spite of the English Duke. In spite of the whole wide world. But the days and weeks fly by. No letter comes. He does not come. It is the 14th of June. For the last time she goes to the little post office. No, miss. Uh, nothing from Florence, miss. But there must be. There must be. Sorry, miss. No, no, no! No more entreaties! I do not love the English Duke! I will not have my wishes countermanded. 
Your wedding will take place tomorrow. It will not be put off for a single day, hour, minute, second. I have tonight, though, Father. Make the most of it, for it is the last evening you have to employ as you may wish. She decides to take her favourite walk that evening. She then takes another path than that which leads home, through some by-streets of the city, out to a lonely bridge. Where he and I stood so often in the sunset, watching the rose-coloured light glow, fade and die upon the river. <laughs> Poor letter, stained with her tears. You are cruel. So entreating, so despairing. You loved her once. No, hardly at all. But now... Yes? I have been utterly bewitched by you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> if she has a rich man to marry her, all the better for her, and for myself... She's off my conscience now, at any rate. What conscience? You have none. I have no wish to fetter myself with a wife. Ah. So? I have my art. Only art is my eternal bride, my unchanging mistress. Shall you return to Brunswick? No, not yet. Not till I can safely salute the bride. You are quite heartless. Even the cold earth wouldn't hold you from me. If you loved me, you'd return to me. Yosef? You hear me? The silly dreams of boyhood. Gone. So, on the 15th of June, he does enter Brunswick, by that very bridge on which she stood, the stars looking down on her the night before. He strolls across the bridge, and down by the water's edge, his great rough dog at his heels. Leo! Here! and the smoke from his meerschaum pipe curling in blue wreaths fantastically in the pure morning air. Leo! I shall make a sketch. Now, let's see what intriguing object presents itself to the artist's eye. Those weeds there? No. Those pebbles on the river's brink, perhaps. That crag on the opposite shore there? That group of pollarded willows in the distance? Oh, pleasant enough composition. Now there's something much more interesting. That group of figures, what's going on? Well, it's not a funeral. There aren't any mourners. It's not a funeral, but... Yes, a corpse lying on a stretcher. Covered with an old sail carried between two bearers. Not a funeral, the bearers are... Fishermen! Yes, fishermen in their everyday garb. And now they rest their burden on the riverbank. A fisherman stands at the head of the bier. A man throws himself down, weeping at the foot of it. My daughter! They make such a perfect group study. Yes, select the point of sight... There. Sketch in a hurried outline. There. In just a few skilful lines, I have the essence of it. You have a body there? Washed ashore an hour ago. Drowned? Yes, drowned. Young girl. 
Very handsome. Suicides are always handsome. The sharp outline of the corpse, the stiff folds of the rough canvas covering. Yes. Life is such a holiday for this young man. Young, ambitious, clever. It seems as though he thinks sorrow and death could have no part whatever in his destiny. I'll come and make a sketch of her, since, as you say, she's so young and so handsome. All the same to me, sir. Do as you like. Shall I remove the sailcloth, sir? Oh, I'll do it myself. There. He lifts the rough, coarse, wet canvas from the face. The face. My God. Features. Rigid. Arms like marble hands crossed on the cold bosom and... On the third finger of the left hand, the ring. The ring like a serpent that was my mother's. The golden serpent. You were right, sir. Which, if I were to become blind, I could select from a thousand others by touch alone. But he is such a genius, this young man. A genius and a metaphysician. Grief, true grief, is not for such as he. His first thought is... I must fly. Fly anywhere out of this accursed city. Anywhere far from the brink of that hideous river. Anywhere. Away from memory. Away from remorse. Anywhere. Anywhere to forget. He is miles on the road that leads away from Brunswick before he realises he has run a step. I'm sorry, my friend. Here, we'll have a rest. Here on this bank by the roadside. Let us put away all thoughts of that image, that thing covered with a damp canvas sail. Come here, boy. You're a good friend. Idly playing with his dog, idly smoking, idly lounging, as any light-hearted travelling student might look. At last, he grows a little more composed and tries to think of himself. And apart from my cousin's suicide, well, after all, I'm no worse off than I was yesterday, am I? My genius is not gone. The money I earned in Florence still lines my pocketbook. I am my own master, free to go where I wish. And here, just as providentially, happens along the old stagecoach. I say, Postilion! I say, stop, stop! You wish to join the coach, sir? Plenty of room inside, sir. Yes, thank you. I do so wish. During the whole evening's journey, through the long night, though he does not close his eyes, he never speaks a word. But when morning dawns and the other passengers awake... You're travelling far, sir? To the fair city of Cologne, my dear sir. Uh -huh. And from thence I journey on to Antwerp, where I shall make a copy of a wonderful picture by Quentin Martzeis. A masterpiece for a rich client of mine and a great deal of money. <laughs> I am, you see, sir, as you will have gathered, an artist of considerable renown. Are you quite well, sir? Why? Don't I look it? Frankly, sir, you do not. Why should I not be perfectly well? I am an artist, a man of genius. Those ailments that affect other mortals are of little interest to me. I am on my way to the fair city of Cologne. You've already told me, sir. Several times. <laughs> <laughs> May I open this window? 
May I suggest that you push your head through and take several draughts of fresh air? <laughs> and that next time you drink, take some water with you. <laughs> Damn you. Oh, the air on my face. Oh, the wind singing in my ears. Fields and roadside reeling and spinning in front of my eyes. I feel... I feel... Oh. And he falls, a lifeless heap, onto the floor of the carriage. It is a fever that keeps him for six long weeks lying on a bed in a hotel at Aix-la-Chapelle. It's the river, isn't it, flowing under the bridge at Brunswick? The river washes everything away, my darling, till there's nothing. No more pretty hair. Pretty lips, pretty eyes all gone, leaving just... What? What goes next? The skin? The flesh? Muscles? Veins? Then what? What's left to look at after all that goes? Bone. Yes, bone. The skull where your pretty face was, sockets where your eyes shone so when you looked at me. Turn your head now, my love, to look at me. Death's head grin where your lips were. Kiss me. No, 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 no. And finally he gets well again and accompanied by his dog starts off on foot for Cologne. I am my former self again. The blue smoke from my pipe curls up into the evening air. He is happy again and has quite forgotten his cousin. Great cathedral. Magnificent pile that it is. I shall make a sketch of it. Such perfection of architectural form. He is not thinking of his drowned cousin now, for he has forgotten her and is happy. Who's that? Who's that? Someone, suddenly, has put two cold arms about his neck. On the flagstones, no shadow but my own and my dogs. Nothing. No one. Not a soul in the broad square. He cannot see the cold arms clasped round his neck. It is not ghostly, this embrace, for it is palpable to the touch. It cannot be real, for it is invisible. No! No! Let me be! He clasps the hands in his own to tear them asunder, to cast them off his neck. He can feel the long, delicate fingers, cold and wet beneath his touch, and on the third finger of the left hand. The golden serpent. My mother's ring, which I'd know among a thousand. Up, Leo, up! Up, I say! The student stands in the moonlight, the dead arms unseen about his neck. There, there, boy. What's the matter, eh? You all right, sir? You don't look well, sir. Can I help you in some way? Is there a hotel nearby? Just across the square, sir. I'll take you. And in a breath, suddenly, the cold arms are gone. You lean on me, sir. I am yeah. most inordinately grateful to you. From that moment, he tries never to be alone. There, sir, have that one on me. Ah, to your good health, madame. Yes, yes, it is, as you say, indeed a lovely day. Lovely. Lovely.
He makes a hundred acquaintances. He starts up if he's left by himself and runs immediately to the place of company. Have I ever told you of the time that I seduced the wife of the English ambassador to the court of the King of Bavaria? I have? I see. People begin to think he is mad. I am not mad. I am a genius. A genius and a metaphysician even. I can see into things, into the life of things in a way that would amaze. That salad that you're eating, sir? Can't you hear the lettuce leaves screaming as you tear at them with your teeth? That piece of chicken that you're devouring with such relish, madame, is positively hysterical with laughter. No, 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 I beg of you, please don't, don't go, please don't go. In spite of all efforts not to be alone, one night in the city of Cologne, on some idle pretense, the painter strolls into the street to find the street is empty. The dog begins to howl. And then, for the second time, he feels the cold arms. About my neck. The dog slinks away from him with a piteous... He leaves the city of Cologne, still travelling on foot, money nearly gone. He joins travelling hawkers and gypsies. He walks side by side with beggars and labourers, talks to everyone, will not be alone, but do what he will, he is often alone. And it is now a common thing to feel those cold, wet arms about my neck. Autumn, winter, early spring, money nearly gone, health utterly broken, he draws near to the city of Paris. He will reach that city at the time of carnival. Surely of all times during carnival I need never, never be alone? I may get my health back, my gaiety. I could resume my old profession there. Once more earn fame and money by my art. Carnival. Yes. Soon the long, dreary roads are in the past. This is Paris, the city, as everyone knows, of light and gaiety. Paris, that city of which he has dreamed so much. Paris, whose million laughing voices may succeed in exercising his phantom. Perhaps. And the lights dance before his eyes. The music dances. It's wonderful. No more darkness, no more loneliness. A mad, joyous crowd, shouting, dancing, laughing. What's going on here, monsieur? It's the Opera Ball, monsieur. I must buy a ticket at once. You may do so, sir. Over there. Uh, merci mille fois, monsieur. I have just enough, yes, for a ticket of admission. There. Merci, monsieur. Enjoy yourself. I shall. I shall. Excuse me. And enough. Here to hire a domino to throw over my shabby clothes. Yes, monsieur. I don the domino and the carnival cloak. <laughs> At last, I feel my old gaiety returning. <laughs> hey, a mademoiselle. Excuse me. Oui, monsieur. Come dance with me. <laughs> no, monsieur. Come, I will not be refused tonight. Come, dance just one waltz. Uh, monsieur is a little drunk. Perhaps. Drunk? Not I. <laughs> I think perhaps so. I am a stranger in this city wishing to sample the hospitality for which Paris is so famous. <laughs> Monsieur. Tell me, 
Where is your famous hospitalité? <laughs> See? I'm making jokes. My old light-hearted spirit that I thought I'd lost forever. It's come back to me again. You're certainly merry, monsieur. Come dance with me, then. And brooking no refusal, he whirls her off into the throng. They dance and dance until the little Parisienne is wearied out. No more, monsieur. I beg of you. Her arm rests on his shoulder as heavy as lead. The other dancers, one by one, drop away. The decorations look pale and shadowy in that dim light, which is neither night nor day. A faint glimmer from the dying lamps. A pale streak of cold grey light from the newborn day. I must leave you, monsieur. No, no, I, I beg of you, don't leave me. The brightness of your eyes has quite died out. How white your face has grown. Bonsoir, monsieur. As I hold you in my arms, the shadow of your face looking into mine. Even the music has faded now. No music but the beating of my heart. The cold arms around my neck. I cannot escape them, I know that now. They will not be flung off or cast away. I can no more escape their icy grasp than death itself. They've all gone, all deserted me. The ballroom is empty. But all I can feel is the touch of your fingers, cold, icy, and the ring like a serpent which eats its own tail. Well then, little Parisienne, let us dance. I'll no longer shun your caress. No. One more waltz then, even if I drop down dead. One more waltz then. One more, then silence. The lights all go out now. There. And after a while, the gendarmes come in with a lantern to see that the hall is empty. Damn this dog. Can't you get rid of it? Oh, shit. Follows us everywhere. Wait a minute. There's something lying there. The body of a student who has died from want of food, exhaustion and the breaking of a blood vessel. He was an artist. In The Cold Embrace by Mary Braddon, dramatised for radio by Christopher Hawes, Mary Braddon was played by Stephanie Turner and Yosef by Jonathan Firth. Gertrude was Alison Pettit, the father, John Hartley, the postmaster, Johan Meredith, and the passenger in the coach, Hugh Dixon. The woman was Carolyn Jones, the fisherman, Chris Pavlo, and the Parisienne, Tracy Ann Oberman. Other parts were played by members of the cast. The director was Marion Nancaro.
Although every word of this tale is true, I do not expect you to believe it. Nowadays, a rational explanation is required before belief in anything is possible. It is held that they were under a delusion. Charles and his wife Laura, on that 31st of October, those many years ago. How far this may present some explanation, and in what sense it is rational, you may judge for yourselves when you have heard. Man-Sized in Marble by Inesbit, dramatized for radio by Christopher Hawes, with Carolyn Jones as Inesbit. Charles used to paint in those days, and Laura used to write when they first married, making just enough money at this to keep the pot simmering. Though living anywhere in London was, they discovered, quite out of the question. And so it was that, on their honeymoon, they took the time to look for a cottage in the country. Oh, it's lovely! Look, Charles! It's rather pretty. Rather pretty. It's exactly right. I'm fed up of looking at cottages. I wonder if it even has adequate drains. Oh, Charles, let's go and see the estate agent. Now, this minute. You know exactly how he'll describe it. Oh, yes. This desirable country residence (laughs) nestling near the church of... in the village of... It'll turn out to be neither desirable nor near the... It is near the church, look. Two fields away. Perhaps fate led us here. But for all those... Rose and jasmine plants climbing all over the place. It'd be hideous. But as it is, Charles... You like it, obviously. I think it's charming. Well, let me consult the brochure. Uh, village of Brenzet, set on a hill, over against the southern marshes. The cottage consists of a quantity of stonework, ivy-covered and moss-grown. <laughs> Room sticking out in the most extraordinarily unexpected places, it should have said. I wonder how much of it's original. Uh, just two old rooms remaining, apparently. It must have been a big old house in its day. And, after but a brief examination, enthusiasm usurping the place of discretion. We'll take it. Shall we? (laughs) Yes, all right. We'll take it. The rest of the honeymoon they spent happily grubbing about in second-hand shops in Ashford, picking up bits of old oak and Chippendale chairs for their furnishing. Laura, at least, was blissfully happy. The garden's lovely. It's jolly old-fashioned. No end of hollyhocks and sunflowers and lilies and rose bushes. Oh, the scent of them. Mm. You can see the old marsh pastures from here. And beyond them, just a thin line on the horizon, the sea. They were as happy as that long, hot summer was glorious. Let me see. I never get tired of drawing it. The clouds, the sea. And I never tire of writing verses about it. With my husband playing the part of foreground, of course. Of course. <laughs> Don't you smudge it. Oh, leave your old drawing. No, I... <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> would you care for some tea, sir? Uh, that would be perfection, Mrs Dorman. Uh, Thank you, Mrs. Dorman. Oh, dear. Do you think she saw us? Oh, what if she did? We're a respectable married couple. We're allowed to kiss each other. Oh, Charlie, don't. Do you think she's spying on us? That isn't fair. I dare say she is. I want her to like us. How could she do anything else? Mrs. Ellen Dorman. 
a peasant woman from the village of good face and figure, whom Charles and Laura had engaged as housekeeper. My cooking's a bit plain. Homely. Is that the word? <laughs> I'm sure we'll soon be bursting with health. Thanks to her ministrations, no doubt. She knows all about the garden and all the names of the local coppices and cornfields. And she's been telling me the most wonderful stories. Stories? What kind of stories? Smugglers and highwaymen. <laughs> what rot? And worse things. Still worse rot. I don't want you paying attention to such things. There's no harm in them. They're just old folk tales. Traditions. Well, don't take them too seriously. I think they're fascinating. Hmm. I wonder if we couldn't find someone better. Charles, I wouldn't think of it. She belongs here. Comes with the property, is that what you're saying? I think it is, yes. I didn't notice anything in the estate agent's brochure about soothsayer attached. Charlie, shush, she'll hear you. Can you hear me, Mrs Dorman? <laughs> Laura prevailed on Charles, and Mrs Dorman stayed. And Laura became yet more drawn to the stories that she had to tell. And if the black dog, the bargast, starts to follow you, the thing is not to run or look over your shoulder at him. Charles watched as Laura, sitting forward in her chair, her chin in her hands like a child again, gazed intently at the old woman as she spun her tales. You mark my words, sir, madam. You take care to watch out for yourselves along these lonely lanes later nights. That's my advice. What may we see there, Mrs. Dorman? Things what walks, sir. Sights. What things, Mrs. Dorman? Uh, uh, I'll be going home now, sir. Ma'am, if you don't mind. Why, yes, of course. You run along. Will you tell me what things, what sights, Mrs. Dorman? They're just old tales, ma'am. I'm longing to hear them. Tomorrow, will you tell me? If you'd like me to, missus. I'd like to write them down. Some of the little magazines I write for might be interested in them. If you say so, ma'am. Uh, very well, then. Sir, ma'am. Good night. Positively alarming. <laughs> She's a wonderful housekeeper. That's good enough for me. And her stories will bring in some money. I'm convinced of it. Are you telling me there's a market for this, Tosh? But yes, there was indeed a market for Mrs Dorman's stories. And indeed, they brought in guineas from the little magazines. Laura and Charles had three months of married happiness. They did not have a single quarrel. One evening, Charles walked down to visit and share a jar with Dr. Kelly, their only neighbour. Come in, Charlie, come in. As ever, you're welcome. As long as he leaves that damn pipe outside. <laughs> all right, all right. I forget. You disapprove of the fragrant weed. I've never understood the necessity of it. <laughs> Have a bowl of malt instead. Uh, which is, of course, thoroughly medicinal. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Sit yourself down, Charlie. Oh, thanks. How's Laura? Oh, chasing the muse as ever. Still churning out the quaint country sketches? I'm finishing one off as we speak. Hmm. Uh, Kelly, tell me. What do you make of Mrs Dorman? Old Mother Dorman. We have women like that back in Ireland. 
full of wise saws and not-so-modern instances, <laughs> and ghostly tales of the hedgerows and the dark little lanes. Oh, she's full of those, all right. Do you reckon there's anything in them? I can't afford to. I'm the medicine man in this village. Science is the thing for me. Mind you, there's not much Mother Dorman doesn't know about herbs and plants. The women of the village all go to her. Rather than to you? For their women's complaints. Your opinion, then, is coloured somewhat by uh, professional jealousy. <laughs> Very possibly. <laughs> mm. But seriously, I'd argue she's a wise old biddy in a way. I've doctored in most of the colonies in my time, and I know about witch doctors and shamans and the like. There may be a kind of wisdom there, but they're also the champions of superstition and ignorance. And, well, as far as I'm concerned, that has to make them the enemy. Take what Mrs. Dorman says with a shovel full of salt. Well, that'd be my advice. Charles enjoyed the doctor's company and his whiskey for a further hour or so. But as he was opening the front door of the cottage... Good heavens! What on earth's the matter? Oh, Charles! What is it? What is it? It's Mrs. Dorman. Mrs. Dorman? What about her? What's she done? She's leaving us. Leave? the end of the month. But why? She says her niece is ill. Her niece is always ill. I don't believe that's the reason. Someone's been setting her against us. Her manner was so queer. Oh, Lord. Never mind, Pussy. Don't cry. Or I shall have to, too. And then you'll never respect your men again. Dry your eyes. That's it. But you don't see. These village people are so sheepy. If one won't do a thing, none of the others will either. I shall have to cook the dinners and wash up all their hateful, greasy plates. You'll have to carry cans of water about and clean the boots and knives. We'll never have any time for work or earn any money or anything. We'll have to work all day and only be able to rest when waiting for the kettle to boil. Pussy, we can do all those things and still have time. No, we can't. We can't. Really, Laura, don't always look on the gloomy side. I'm not looking on the gloomy side. You're being a little unreasonable. I'm not. Listen, I'll speak to Mrs. Dorman when she comes back and see if we can come to terms. Perhaps she's simply after a rise in her screw. Yes, perhaps. It'll be all right. Will it? I'm certain of it. Tell you what, let's go for a walk up to the church. Yes. All right. I'll go and put on my coat. It had become a favourite walk of theirs. The path skirted a wood cut through it once, ran along the crest of the hill and round the churchyard wall, over which the yews loomed in masses of shadow. This was known to the villagers as the beer balk. "'Tis the way corpses is brought to be carried to burial, sir, madam. A large low porch leads into the church by a Norman doorway, a heavy door studded with iron. The arches rise up into the darkness. The windows stand out white in the moonlight. On each side of the altar... The grey figure of a knight in full armour. Charles recalled the words of Mrs Dorman. 
'tis not known what their names were. Fierce and wicked men, 'tis said, sir, madam, marauders by land and sea, scourge of their times. They done deeds so foul that the house they lived in, why, the house that stood here on this very spot, sir, madam, struck by lightning it were, and then by the vengeance of heaven, doomed. For all that, the gold those men handed down built the church itself and bought them a place in it. Are you feeling better? Yes, thank you. <sighs> Much better. I love you. Oh, my love. My only love. You sent for me, sir. Ah, Mrs Dorman. And what's all this about? I should be glad to get away, sir, by the end of the month, if possible. <laughs> I confess, I'm at a loss to understand it. Have you any fault to find with your situation here? Oh, no, sir, none at all. You and your lady have been most kind. But what, then? Is it a matter of wages? Uh, no, sir, I get more than enough. Then why on earth not stay? It's my niece, sir. She's not well. <sighs> Good heavens, woman, she's been ill ever since we came here. Well, can't you stay for at least another month? No, sir, sorry. I have to go Thursday. Well, stay till next week, then. I might come back next week, sir. You've been so good. Then why must you be away from us this week? Well, sir... Come on, Mrs Dorman, out with it. Well, sir, it's the house. What about the house? Well, like I told you, sir, this was a big house in the old days. And? And there was many deeds done here. What sort of deeds? Wicked deeds. Deeds of blood. Well, sir, I know you likes to go to the church. It's a very fine church. What of it? You may have seen in the church, beside the altar, two shapes. Those effigies of the old knights in armour, yes. Them two bodies drawed out, man-sized, in marble. Yes, what of them? Tis said, sir, that on All Saints' Eve, them two bodies, sits up on their slabs and gets off them, then walks down the aisle in their marble. I see. Really. Is that uh, said? Yes, sir. And as the church clock strikes eleven, they walks out of the church door and over the graves and along the beer balk and if it's a wet night, there's the marks of their feet there in the morning. And where do you suppose they go to? They comes back here, to their old home, sir. Uh, Mrs Dorman, <clears throat> I'd, um, I'd very much rather you didn't speak to my wife of such things anymore. Oh, Even but... if she asks you to. <sighs> She's rather delicate, nervous, as I'm sure you're aware. Such highly strung natures as hers usually are. Charles could not, at the time, make head nor tail of any of this. And not one other word could he get from Mrs Dorman, save that her niece was ill and she must go to her. But she did utter a dark warning as she left. Whatever you do, sir, lock the door early on All Saints' Eve. And make the blessed cross sign over the doorstep and the windows. What nonsense! So, Mrs Dorman left, with promises to return after All Hallows' Eve.
Charles and Laura made do with their own domestic arrangements as best they could. Charles was at that time engaged in painting a portrait of Laura. He had posed her that evening against the light of the lattice window. The picture was going extremely well. Well, the background works. At least I can say that. Thank you. I'm delighted to hear it. Yellow and grey sunset. Go on then. Tell me. Hmm? What? How was supper? Oh, you showed marked ability in the matter of steak and potatoes. <laughs> and your washing-up <laughs> skills are most commendable. Well, it's not been too bad, has it, fending for ourselves? It's been rather fun. Well, Mrs. Deal will be back next week, don't worry. You see if she isn't. It was all so good, so very pleasant. They were so very much in love. Friday came. It is about what happened on that Friday that I speak to you now. I will tell it as plainly as I can. Come on. What virtue! Oh. <coughs> My husband lighting the kitchen fire. Oh, early to rise on this sunny, sweet October morning. I'll prepare breakfast. Oh, we'll make it together. What a lovely idea. Yes, let's. And so they did and found it very jolly. They had never been so happy since they married... The walk they had that afternoon was the happiest and perhaps the saddest of their life. Deep scarlet clouds slowly pale to leaden grey against a pale green sky. White mist curls from the hedgerows in the distant marsh. You sad, pussy? Yes. Oh, I expected at least a denial. Or rather, I'm uneasy. I hope I'm not going to be ill. I've shivered three or four times and it's not really cold, is it? Not really, but it is damp from the marsh, miss. Charles. What is it, pussy? Do you ever have presentiments? Presentiments? Of evil. No. And I shouldn't believe in them for a moment if I had. Remember the night my father died? Well, he was miles away, in the north of Scotland. Even so... I knew it. There, I've said it. I feel better now. Let's go home, Charlie. We'll light the candles and we'll play some of those new piano duets. That's lovely. At about half past ten, Charles began to fill his good night pipe. Charlie, please. I'll take it outside, my love. Let me come too. Uh, no, sweetheart, not tonight. You're tired. I'll not be long. Get to bed. Or I shall have an invalid to nurse tomorrow, not just the boots to clean. We've been happy today, haven't we? Oh, yes. We have. Don't stay out too long. I won't. Jagged masses of heavy, dark cloud rolled from horizon to horizon, and thin white wreaths covered the stars. Through all the rush of the cloud river, the moon swam, breasting the waves, then disappearing into the darkness. There was a strange, grey light over all the earth, the marriage of dew and moonshine, of frost and starlight. The 
night was absolutely silent. Nothing seemed to be abroad. And though the clouds went sailing across the sky, the wind that drove them came nowhere near enough to rustle the dead leaves upon the woodland path. Across the meadow, Charles could see the church tower, black and grey against the sky. Eleven already. He turned to go in, but somehow the night held him. He decided to walk on, up to the church. He walked along the edge of the wood. Wait! He stopped, and he listened. He went on, and then distinctly heard another step than his. Answering mine like an echo. Oh, <laughs> that's what it is. Simply an echo. He walked along the bear balk and passed through the corpse gate between the graves to the low porch. The wood lay lovely in the moonlight. The door of the church was open. He went in and remembered the old woman's words. Whatever you do, sir, lock the door early on All Saints' Eve. What nonsense! How could he do otherwise than walk up towards the altar? Say, Mrs. Dorman, how idle your fancies are. To where the sleeping marble figures should lie, peacefully sleeping through their ghostly hour. To where they should lie, as I say, peacefully sleeping. But then, as Charles clearly saw, the marble slabs lay wide and bare in the moonlight which slanted through the west window. My God. God. Laura. Laura! You've been smoking too much and listening to old wives' tales. I tell you, I've seen the marble slabs in the church empty. Well, have you been drinking, my friend? Nothing, nothing. I must go to Laura now. Oh, rubbish, man. Do you think I'll permit of that? Are you going to go on all your life saying you've seen solid marble endowed with vitality? Uh, and me to go all my life saying you're a coward? No, sir. You shan't do it. The quiet night, that human voice... That six feet of solid Irish common sense brought Charles back a little to his ordinary self. Come along then, Doctor. Into the church. I'll show you. There you are, sir. The two figures of stone, lying as they always have lain and will lie, all sound. Oh, thank God, thank God. Oh, Kelly, I, I really am most awfully indebted to you. He must have been some trick of the light, or, or I've been working too hard lately. Perhaps that's it. Do you know, I was quite convinced they were gone. I'm aware of that. You'll have to be careful of that brain of yours. 
He was leaning over and looking at the right-hand figure. The stony face was the most villainous and deadly in expression. Something's been going on here. Uh, this hand is broken. I'm certain it was perfect when I saw it last. No. Look, it's... There's a finger missing. That there is. Come on, old man. My wife will be getting anxious. Come and have some whiskey with me. <laughs> we'll drink confusion to all ghosts. And better sense to me, eh? <laughs> they walked back together across the fields, up the garden path, bright light streaming through the open parlour door. Laura? The parlour ablaze with candles. Not only wax ones, but at least a dozen guttering, glaring tallow dips stuck in vases and ornaments in unlikely places. Laura! Oh, she's gone to bed, no doubt. My instructions. Your wife likes plenty of light. It's a remedy for nervousness. Laura! Don't get her up on my account. Laura, we have a guest here. Laura? Her chair was empty. Her handkerchief and book lay on the floor. Laura, where are you? And then he saw where Laura was. By the window. Fallen back against a table in the window. Body lying half on and half off the window seat. Head hung down over the table. Brown hair loosened and falling. Did you go to that window to watch for me? Charlie. What came into the room behind you? And to what did you turn with that frantic look of fear and horror? Was it my step you thought you heard and, and, and turned to meet? He took her in his arms, looked into that face, lips drawn back, eyes wide, <sighs> wide open. It's all right, Laura. I've got you safe, my dear love. There's something clenched in her hand. Look. When Charles was quite sure she was dead and that nothing mattered at all anymore, he let Kelly prize open Laura's hand to see what it was she held. A grey marble finger. In Man Sized in Marble by Inesbit, dramatized to radio by Christopher Hawes, Inesbit was played by Carolyn Jones. Charles was Stephen Critchlow, Laura, Deborah Berlin, and Dr. Kelly, Gerard McDermott. Mrs. Dorman was Tina Gray. The director was Marion Nancaro. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mary Boyne and her husband, Edward, in quest of a country place in one of the southern or southwestern counties, had, on their arrival in England, carried their problem straight to their good friend, Alida Stair. 
Well, there's Ling, of course. In Dorsetshire. As we Americans would call it. Hmm. It belongs to Hugo's cousins. You can buy it for a song. Why for a song? With miles from the railway. There's certainly no electric light or hot water pipes or any such vulgarities. Sounds just what we're looking for. Mary? <laughs> Ned would never believe he was living in an old house unless he was thoroughly uncomfortable in it. I can assure you Ling is almost too uncomfortable to be true. <laughs> and the ghost? You've been concealing from us the fact that there is no ghost. Oh, my dear. Dorsetshire is full of ghosts. Oh, but that won't do at all. I don't want to have to drive ten miles to see somebody else's. I must have one of my own, and on the premises, too. Come on, Alida, own up. Is there a ghost at Ling? Oh, there is one. Not that you'll ever know it. But what in the world constitutes a ghost except for the fact of its being known to one? I can't say, but that's the story. That there's a ghost, but nobody knows it's a ghost. Well, not till afterward, at any rate. Till afterward? Not till long, long afterward. Afterward by Edith Wharton. Dramatized for radio by Christopher Hawes. With Buffy Davis as Edith Wharton. Mary Boyne, abruptly exiled from New York by her husband's business, had endured for nearly 14 years the soul-deadening ugliness of a Middle Western American town. Ned Boyne had ground on doggedly at his engineering till, with a suddenness that still made Mary blink, the prodigious windfall of the Blue Star Mine. Mary! Mary! The Blue Star Mine! We've hit pay dirt! At last, at last, we're rich, honey! Rich! Had put them, at a stroke, in possession of life. They decided to find a place where they could simply retreat from the world, Ned to write his book. On the economic basis of culture. Mary to indulge her passion. For gardening. And to lay the butter on thick with every delicious morsel. <laughs> they certainly knew how to lay it on here. <laughs> sure did. Ling House. Dorsetshire. A fine old house, hidden under a shoulder of the downs, with almost all the finer marks of commerce with a protracted past. It was neither large nor exceptional. This made it to the Boynes abound the more completely in its especial charm. The charm of having been for centuries a deep, dim reservoir of life. The life had probably not been of the most vivid order. No doubt it had fallen as noiselessly into the past as the quiet drizzle of autumn fell, hour after hour, into the fish pond between the yews. But that is what at first seemed to suit Ned and Mary to the ground. At first, I said. For these backwaters of ancient existence sometimes breed in their sluggish depths strange acuities of emotion. And Mary Boyne felt, from the very first of their days at Ling, the mysterious stirrings of intenser memories, of stronger feelings. 
and as the months sped by, from autumn into winter, an estranging shadow seemed to cast itself over Mary and Ned. Ned, as once one late October afternoon, waiting in the library for the lamps to come, she rose from her chair to stand with him, among the shadows on the hearth. Yes, what is it? Is something the matter? I don't believe so. I'm going for a walk before the light goes. It's so damp and gloomy. I don't mind that. May I come with you? I'd rather be alone, just for some air. You seem so preoccupied, Mary. I am not in the least preoccupied. As if you had some secret you were keeping from me. I have none. You know that. Well, then perhaps without even knowing it, I'm hiding one from you. <laughs> What nonsense! Perhaps the house really is haunted, and we've been taking the poor old ghost for granted all these weeks. Alas, poor ghost, poor ineffectual demon. And that's why it beats its beautiful wings in vain, in the void. <laughs> It's the house itself, of course, that sees the ghost. Perhaps one has to get into communication with the house itself. You've done that already. That's the great weight you carry round with you so silently. No, one is not allowed to discuss a ghost one has seen. It's bad form, a breach of taste, my dear, like a man naming a lady in his club. Of course, even if you had seen a ghost, you wouldn't know it, would you? Not till afterwards. Who is that? Who's what? There, look through the window. I don't see anyone. A man coming this way down the Lime Avenue. Not one of the locals in those clothes. Hello, who are you? He doesn't seem to hear you. Hey, you! No. I better go and see what he wants. Who was it? Did you find him? No. I think it must have been Peters. In those clothes. I do need to have a word with him about the stable drains, but he'd、uh, disappeared before I had a chance to get to him. But he seemed to be walking so slowly. I guess he must have got up some steam in the interval. Yes, I suppose he must. Mary dismissed these thoughts from her mind. Indeed, thought nothing of them. While that mean, damp winter blossomed into spring, and so it was that one calm late afternoon, as she sat alone in serene communion with the deep shadows of the library, she was surprised again to see, as she peered into the outer world and the bright light the windows held, a figure shaping itself far down the perspective of lime trees, with their fresh green leaves. Who is that? A mere blot of deeper brown against the greenness, but then she saw. Oh, thank goodness, Ned! Ned! She waved and waved to him. Hi, Mary! Coming! Coming! Talking it over later with Ned, Mary was almost gay. It's really too absurd, but I never can remember. Remember what? That when one sees the ghost, one never knows it. 
Did you think you'd seen it? I actually took you for it in my mad determination to spot it. <laughs> you really better give up if that's the best you can do. I'll give it up if you will. Have you? Have I what? Given up. Trying to see the ghost. I never even started trying. Well, of course, the exasperating thing is there's no use trying, since one can't be sure till... Afterwards, yes. Any idea how long? No, none. Have you? Hmm. Lord, no. I only meant, is there any legend? Any tradition as to that? Not that I know of. What makes you ask? I'm dying for my tea, you know. Huh. And here's a letter for you. For me? A clipping from a newspaper. From the Waukesha Sentinel. Your name's here, Ned. Oh? Someone named Elwell has brought some lawsuit against you. Maintains there was something wrong about the Blue Star Mine. Ned, what is this? I can't understand more than how... Oh, that. Is that all? I thought you'd got bad news. You knew about this? Sure I knew, and it's all perfectly okay. What does this man accuse you of? Uh, pretty nearly every crime in the calendar. <laughs> it's just a silly squabble over interests in the Blue Star. Elwell's a fellow I put into it. I gave him a hand up when he needed it. But if you helped him, why does he repay you like this? I guess some shyster lawyer got hold of him and talked him over. The whole business is all very technical and complicated. I thought that kind of thing bored you. But a lawsuit? Doesn't it worry you? It's all ancient history now. You mean he lost his case? The suit's been withdrawn, that's all. Because he saw he had no chance? Oh, he had no chance, all right. And it's... it's all right for us. I give you my word. It was never righter. One of the strangest things Mary was afterward to recall, out of all the next day's strangeness, was the sudden and complete recovery of her sense of security... It was in the air when she awoke in her low-ceiling, dusky room. It went with her downstairs to the breakfast table. It flashed out at her from the windows, and it reduplicated itself from the flanks of the urn and the sturdy flutings of the Georgian teapot. What are you going to do with your day? I'm getting behind on the book. I'll be in the library. And you? I have an appointment in the greenhouse. Really? Hmm, something wrong with the piping there, apparently. Ah. Uh, some sort of an expert is traveling out from Dorchester to make a diagnosis of the boiler. There's heating in the greenhouse, you notice, not in the house. I guess Hugo's cousin cared more for his plants than for his people. <laughs> okay, my dear, I'll see you later. Mm. Peters, has the man from Dorchester arrived? Not yet, ma'am. I'll bring him to you when he does. Mary paced along the springy turf of the bowling green to the gardens behind the house. At their farther end rose a grass terrace, looking across the fish pond and the yew hedges to the long house front with its twisted chimney stacks and blue roof angles clear-cut in the pale gold freshness of the air. She'd never before had such a sense of intimacy with the place, such a conviction that its secrets were all beneficent, kept, as they say to children, for one's own good, such a trust in its power to gather up her life and Ned's 
Into the harmonious pattern of the long, long story, it sat there weaving in the bright, clear sun. Mrs. Boyne. You're not the gentleman from Dorchester. No, I'm not. A youngish, slightly built man, the brim of his soft felt hat casting a shade on his face so that she could not see his eyes. Then can I help you in some way? I came to see Mr. Boyne. Have you an appointment with my husband? I think he expects me. He never sees anyone in the morning. He works. Have you come a long way to see him? Yes, I have. Then why don't you go to the house? Send a message by one of the servants. If you've come so far, my husband may agree to see you. Gentlemen's come, ma'am. Gentlemen from Dorchester. Thank you, Peters. If you'll excuse me, that way to the house. You'll find my husband in the library. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mary was beguiled into spending the rest of the morning with the Dorchester engineer in absorbed confabulation amongst the flower pots. This colloquy ended. She was surprised to find that it was nearly time for luncheon, and she half expected as she hurried back to the house to see her husband coming out to greet her. But she found no one in the court, but an undergardener raking the gravel. And the hall, when she entered it, was so silent that she guessed Ned was still at work in the library. Shall I tell Cook to serve luncheon, Mom? Yes, Trimble, do go about that. Uh, no, wait a moment. Ned? Ned, may I come in? Oh. Uh, Trimble, Mr. Boyne must be upstairs. Kindly go and tell him that luncheon is ready. If you please, ma'am, Mr. Boyne's not upstairs. Not in his room? Are you sure? I'm sure, ma'am. Where on earth is he, then? He's gone out, ma'am. Gone out? Yes, ma'am. Well, where did he go? And when? Out the front door and up the drive, ma'am. Did Mr. Boyne leave no message? No, ma'am. He just went out with the gentleman. When did a gentleman call? Do explain yourself, Trimble. I couldn't exactly say the exact hour, ma'am. But it's after two o'clock. The gentleman called about eleven o'clock, ma'am. Mr Boyne went out with him. Didn't leave a message, ma'am. Not even his name. Didn't give a card. Just wrote his name down on a slip of paper, folded it and handed it over. Said I was to deliver it at once to Mr Boyne. Perhaps he's just gone with a gentleman to the railway station. Yes, I I'm sure that's what it is. Trimble, I'm going for a walk into the village. Tell Mr. Boyne when he returns that I won't be long. Yes, ma'am. Mary Boyne's experience as the wife of a man once a busy engineer and subject to sudden calls and irregular hours had trained her to the philosophic acceptance of such surprises. She walked, after taking a solitary luncheon, with as little concern about her husband's whereabouts as she could manage to the village post office a mile or so away, and when she had concluded her business there, turned for home. It was late afternoon. Ned, are you there? Ned? As Mary stood in the long, silent room, her dread seemed to take shape and sound, to be breathing and lurking there amongst the shadows. Her eyes strained through them, half discerning an actual presence, something aloof, that watched and knew. Trimble, 
Trimmel. Yes, ma'am. You may bring tea if Mr. Boyne is in. Very well, ma'am. But I'm afraid he is not. You mean he's come in and gone out again? No, ma'am. He's never been back. Not since he went out with the gentleman? No, ma'am. Who was this person? That I couldn't say, ma'am. But you must know something. I told you, ma'am. He wrote his name on a folded paper. You must have a name, Trimmel. Where is this paper? I wouldn't know, ma'am. Let's see. Perhaps it's here. Oh, a letter. Half finished. As if left there. Half finished. I have just received your letter announcing Elwell's death. And while I suppose there is now no further risk of trouble, it might be safer. I never read what it said on the paper, ma'am. Weren't none of my business. And when you carried the paper to Mr. Boyne, what did he say? I don't think he said anything. I gave him the paper, ma'am, and as he was opening it, that other gentleman came in and I slipped out. You must be able to tell me what he looked like. His hat, ma'am, was different-like, as you might say. With a wide brim? Yes, ma'am. What sort of face? Pale? Youngish? Yes, ma'am. Couldn't see the eyes. In the fortnight since Ned Boyne's disappearance, there had been no word of him, no trace of his movements. No one but Trimmel had seen Boyne leave the house, and no one else had seen the gentleman who accompanied him. The bright, fine English noon seemed to have swallowed them both completely. I have just received your letter announcing Elwell's death, and while I suppose there is now no further risk of trouble, it might be safer. What trouble? What might be safer? Mrs. Boyne? Uh, Inspector, have you any news? I am very sorry. You have other cases to attend to now. Yes. Other disappearances, no doubt. Among other things, Mrs. Boyne, we are exploring every possible... Days and days and days and days. And now it's weeks and weeks and months, and I've grown too tired of waiting, my darling. I sit here in the library. I watch the days pass. I feel as if I've swallowed a poison. Something that leaves the brain clear as ice but holds the body still. Quite still. Mary. Alida. Darling Mary. Yes. What is it? You must come away, my dear. Why must I? You think if you sit here, he'll come back to you? No, 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 you're wrong. You don't see. I don't think that at all. I know he'll never come back now. He has gone from my sight forever, as surely as if death itself had waited for him that day. Then why sit here waiting for him? What else can I possibly do? The floor she trod had felt his tread. The books on the shelves had seen his face. There were moments, certainly, when it seemed as if the walls might break out in some audible revelation of their secret. But such moments grew fewer and fewer. The revelation never came. And then she knew for certain that it never would. 
No, I'll never know now what became of him. No one will ever, ever know. The house knows, though. The house and... The library, in which she spent her long, long evenings knew. For it was here that the last scene had been enacted. Here that the stranger had spoken the word which had caused Boyne to rise and follow him. Ling was not one of those garrulous old houses that betray the secrets entrusted to them. And Mary Boyne, sitting face to face with its silence, felt the futility of trying to break it by any human means. A gentleman, ma'am. Mrs. Boyne? Yes. Who are you? My name is Parvis, Mrs. Boyne. I'm an associate of your late husband. My late husband? I'm sorry. You assume that he is dead. I don't wish to... Please don't apologize. I think I believe it, too. I uh, happen to have run over to England on business. As an old colleague of your husband's, I couldn't leave without paying my respects to you, Mrs. Boyne. That's very kind of you. Or without asking you to tell me, what are your intentions with regard to Bob Elbow's family? I know nothing about them. Nothing at all. Nothing whatsoever. You know about the Blue Star Mine, I presume. Only what my husband told me. Very little. Your husband made a great deal of money out of that deal, Mrs. Boyne. Others weren't quite so fortunate. It's the kind of thing that happens every day in business. Bob Alwell wasn't smart enough, that's all. I guess it's what the scientists call survival of the fittest, right? You accuse my husband of doing something dishonorable? No, no. I don't even see it wasn't straight. I don't say it wasn't, and I don't say it was. It was business. But Mr. Elwell's lawyers apparently did not take your view, since I suppose the lawsuit was withdrawn by their advice. Oh, yes. They knew he didn't have a leg to stand on, technically speaking. It was when they advised him to withdraw that he grew desperate. You see, he'd borrowed most of the money he lost in the Blue Star, and he was up a tree, you might say. What happened to him? He tried to shoot himself. He tried? Yes, ma'am. He didn't succeed in his attempt? No. Did he try again? He didn't have to. He dragged on for months. Then he died. Why are you telling me this? I assumed that you knew about this business. If not, it's high time you did. You see, it's only come out lately what a bad state Elwell's affairs were in. His wife's a proud woman and hung on for as long as she could, going out to work, taking in sewing at home when she got too sick. Something to do with the heart, I believe. But she had the children to look after, and Elwell's mother, and she broke under it and finally had to ask for help. That called attention to the case, and the papers took it up, and a subscription was started. Everybody out there liked Bob Elwell. Here. Here's an account of it in the Sentinel. A little sensational, of course. But I guess you better look it over. Widow of Boyne's victim forced to appeal for aid. Two pictures. One is Ned's. And the other. I thought if you felt disposed to put your name down. The other picture. A youngish man. Slightly built. With features somewhat blurred by the shadow of a projecting hat brim. Oh, Mrs. Bowen, you're not very well. Shall I call someone? Shall I get a glass of water? No, no, no. I know this man. 
I spoke to him in the garden. That's not possible, Mrs. Bourne. That is a photo of Robert Elwell. Then it was Robert Elwell who came for him. Came for your husband? The day he went away from here. Robert Elwell was dead, Mrs. Bourne. Will you answer me one question, please? When did Robert Elwell try to kill himself? We'll see it here. Look. Uh, huh, here it is. Last October. The, the 20th, wasn't it? You knew it was? I know now. Sunday, October the 20th. The day he came here first. Came here first? Yes. You saw him twice? Yes, twice. He came first on the 20th of October. We saw him from here, from the library. He came down the Lime Avenue toward the house. My husband went to see who it was, but there was no one there. I couldn't think what had happened. I see now. He tried to come then, but he wasn't dead enough. Not dead enough? No. He couldn't reach us then, you see. He had to wait two months to die, and then he came back again. And that time Ned went with him. And then... Oh, oh my God! Oh, Mrs. Bourne, what on earth is it? Oh, my God! I sent him to Ned. I told him where to go. I sent him to this room, the library. I sent him here! She felt the walls of books rush toward her, like inward falling ruins. Mrs. Boyd? Mrs. Boyd? But she couldn't hear Parvis or feel his touch as he tried to stop her falling. And through the tumult, she heard but one clear note. Alida Stare speaking to her, ages ago, on the lawn at Pangbourne. That's the story. That there's a ghost, but nobody knows it's a ghost? Well, not till afterward, at any rate. Till afterward? Not till long, long afterward. In Afterward by Edith Wharton, dramatised for radio by Christopher Hawes, Edith Wharton was played by Buffy Davis. Ned Boyne was John Garasio, Mary Boyne, Barbara Barnes, and Alida, Carolyn Jones. Parvis was Sean Baker, Trimmel, Rachel Atkins, and Robert Elwell, Alex Lowe. Peters and the Inspector were played by Christopher Scott. The director was Marion Nancaro. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Towards the end of her day in London, Mrs. Drover went round to her shut-up house to look for several things she wanted to take away. Some belonged to herself, some to her family. It was late August. 
It had been a steamy, showery day. The trees down the pavement glittered in an escape of humid yellow afternoon sun. Against the clouds, already piling up ink dark, broken chimneys and parapets, an unused channel, an unfamiliar queerness had silted up. A cat wove itself in and out of the railings. But no human eye watched Mrs. Drover's return. Shifting some parcels under her arm, she slowly forced round her latch key in an unwilling lock, then gave the door which had warped a push with her knee. There. Dead air came out to meet her as she went in. The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bowen. Dramatised for radio by Christopher Hawes, with Maggie Steed as Elizabeth Bowen and Jenny Howe as Mrs Drover. The staircase window having been boarded up, no light came down into the hall, but one door she could just see stood ajar. She went quickly into the room and unshuttered the big window. Now the prosaic woman, looking about her, was more perplexed than she knew by everything she saw, by traces of her long former habit of life. Oh, dear. A yellow smoke stain up the marble mantelpiece. Oh, really? The ring left by a vase on top of the escritoire. Oh. The bruise in the wallpaper where the china handle always used to hit the wall. Claw marks from the piano on the parquet floor. The whole drawing room... Musty. ...smelled of the cold hearth. The caretaker might at least have found time to air the place. Of course, it's the war. One can no longer expect such things. The caretaker tells me he's off on his holidays. Holidays in wartime, I don't think so. The man is simply not to be trusted. Oh, dear, those cracks that keep appearing in the walls and ceiling. Not that one can do anything. Herr Hitler's fault, I suppose, isn't it? From the bombing. Isn't everything Herr Hitler nowadays? Each object in the room wore a film of dust. I shall go upstairs, quickly, to the bedroom, find the chest under the bed, pick out those few things and... A shaft of refracted daylight now lay across the hall. Mrs. Drover stopped dead. What is that? And stared at the hall table. A letter. Mrs. Drover. Caretaker must be back from holiday, then. All the same. Who on earth would have dropped a letter in the box? Seeing the house all shuttered as it is. Not a circular. Not a bill. And the post office redirects everything, doesn't it? To the country address. Everything that comes through the post. I didn't tell the wretched caretaker I was coming up to London. Fancy just leaving a letter like that, though. Waiting in the dust and the dusk. I shall have a sharp word with him about it. No stamp on the envelope. Can't be anything important, otherwise they'd know. She took the letter rapidly upstairs with her, without a stop to look at the writing. 
till she reached what had been her bedroom. Throw some light on the subject. The room looked out over the garden and other gardens. The sun had now gone in. The clouds had sharpened and lowered. The trees and the rank lawn seemed to smoke in the dark. I don't even want to look at it, the garden. Dear Kathleen, you will not have forgotten that today is our anniversary and the day we said. <gasps> the years have gone by at once slowly and fast. In view of the fact that nothing has changed, I shall rely upon you to keep your promise. I was sorry to see you leave London, but was satisfied that you would be back in time. You may expect me, therefore, at the hour arranged. Until then, K. And the date is today's. She dropped the letter onto the bed springs, then picked it up to see the writing again. I shall rely upon you to keep your promise. <gasps> Her lips beneath the remains of the lipstick, beginning to go white. I must look a perfect fright. In the mirror, she was confronted by a woman of 44, eyes staring out from under a hat brim, rather carelessly pulled down. Perhaps I'd better put some powder on. I haven't done my face since I was in that wretched cafe over my solitary tea. Look at that neck. Pearls don't show it off anymore. Drover gave me those pearls on our wedding day. They just hang there now. Slip into the V of that pink wool jumper Grace knitted last autumn, sitting by the fire. Not a bad face, though. Still. I keep my dignity. I still get that little flicker to the left of my mouth. Had that ever since little Edward and James came into the world, when I was so ill. I can control it, though. I keep my dignity. Turning from her own face as precipitately as she has gone to meet it, she went to the chest where the things were, unlocked it, threw up the lid and knelt to search. She could not keep from looking over her shoulder at the stripped bed on which the letter lay. Six o'clock. The hour arranged. My girl, what hour? How should I? After 21 years. The young girl talking to the soldier had not ever completely seen his face. It was dark. They were saying goodbye under a tree. I can't see your face. It doesn't matter. It does matter, it does. No. Please. It doesn't. Let me see you. Take my hand. All right. Here. He's hurting me. That's so as you'll remember, right? My tunic button, right? He's hurting. But of course I say nothing. That cut of the button in the palm of her hand was, principally, what she was to carry away. This was so near to the end of a leave from France that she could only wish him already gone. It was August, 1916. 
Being not kissed. Let me look at you. Yes. Being drawn away from and looked at intimidated Kathleen till she imagined spectral glitters in the place of his eyes. Turning away and looking up the lawn, she saw, through the branches of the trees, the drawing-room window alight. Caught her breath for the moment she would go running back. Cold? You're going such a long way. Not as far as you think. I don't understand. You don't have to. Don't I? No, not yet. You will, one day. Will I? I shall be with you, sooner or later. You won't forget that. I won't forget that. You need do nothing but wait. Nothing but wait. Only a little later she was free to run up the silent lawn, looked in at the window at her mother and her sister, who did not for the moment perceive her. She felt that unnatural promise drive down between her and the rest of humankind. No other way of having given herself could have made her feel so apart, lost, and forsworn. She could not have plighted a more sinister troth. Kathleen, my dear. Yes, Mother. Come here. We've something to tell you. Yes, Father. Some news, I'm afraid. From somewhere called the Front. That's right. That's right. You'd better sit down, perhaps. Sit down. That's right. I know what you're going to tell me. A telegram on the hall table. Now, let me explain. Missing. Presumed killed, it says. That doesn't mean anything final by that. It means just exactly what it says. Missing. Presumed. Presumed. He could still be alive somewhere, for all we know. He isn't still alive. Facing up to things. You're my brave girl. You are a very brave... We hardly knew him, really. Father! I'm only saying what's true. Yes, well... You'll soon meet someone, you'll see. In a year or two... Sadness passes. But that isn't it, you see. What, dear? I don't feel sad. Only a little. Only a very, very little. I don't know what goes on in that head of yours. I don't know, either. Staring out of the window? Staring at nothing? You seem so... distant. Yes. That's it, then. I'm distant. Her trouble, behind her just a little grief, was a complete dislocation from everything. For years she failed to attract men. You should go out more. Try and meet someone else. You can't live on your memories forever. Why can't I? It isn't natural. Where are they, then, all these men? I don't see them. She did not reject other lovers, for they simply failed to appear. And with the approach of her thirties, she became natural enough to share her family's anxiousness. I will put myself out. I will. Kathleen. His name was William Drover, a very clean man. Oh, 
always beautifully turned out, beautifully dressed, not gaudy. Respectable. Now I suppose it's high time I tried to forget. At the age of 32, she was very greatly relieved to find herself being courted by... I wish you'd call me William. How do you do, William? I'm very well indeed. I was wondering... Yes? Whether you'd like to... I think perhaps I would. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, thank you. I would, yes. She married him. And the two of them settled down in this quiet, arboreal part of Kensington. We'll do the front room out in cream. Wallpaper for the hallway. That greeny wallpaper with the flowers on. That'd go nice. What do you think? Hey, Kathleen? Wallpaper will be nice. You haven't been listening to a word I've said. I have? Really? Oh, all right, all right. We'll be happy here. That's right. In this very house, her children were born. I don't know what to do. Well, hold him. He wants you. There, there, there. Look. <laughs> He's smiling now. Is he? Is he smiling? Yes, look. He's got your funny smile. Well, that's no gift. Oh, come on, love. We wanted a baby, now we've got two. Ain't we the lucky ones, eh? The years piled up. Where's Edward? Well, he's all right. He's playing in the garden. Edward? Edward! Look, leave him alone. He's fine. I can't see him. Where is he? Good heavens, woman, he's a boy. He's probably playing cowboys in the bushes. Edward! Leave him. You don't know anything. You don't understand anything. Kathleen! I don't want him in the garden after dark. He should be in bed by now. It's the school holidays! I don't care. I want him in now. Edward! And they all lived here. Edward, take your elbows off the table. Now, shall we say grace? Father, we thank thee for this food you have provided for us. Till they were driven out by the bombs of war. Oh dear. Well, Kathleen drove up. Dead or alive, whoever sent you that letter means you harm, that's for certain. My back hurts. Oh. As she rose from the chest to sit on an upright chair, whose back was firmly against a wall. This was our bedroom for all those years. Look at it, like a cracked old teacup. How many years lying with him in this bed? I know him all right, William. The one I married. I know everything there is to know about him. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. I'm the happiest man alive. The letter sits there, on the bed springs, looking at me. The hollowness of the house this evening had cancelled for Mrs. Drover years on years of voices... Habits, steps. Through the shut windows, she heard only rain fall on the roofs around. No, no, no. It's nothing. Pull yourself together, Kathleen. I've simply got myself into a mood. Close your eyes, Kathleen. Happy birthday, my dear. What is it? Open it and find out. I'll close my eyes for a minute. There. 
And when I open them, it'll all be gone. There. But no, no, no. It isn't gone. The letter's still there on the bed springs, looking at me. What's the matter, my dear? Nothing. You seem so... so distant somehow. I'm not. Really, I'm not. Looking out of the window, into the garden. Was I? Really? Was I? Yes. Yes, I did look into the garden, hour after hour after hour. Perhaps if we were to move to the country, you'd be happy then. Now... I have to think carefully about what I must do. Someone in London must have known I was coming up from the country. They simply must have. Even if the caretaker had come back, he'd no reason to expect me, had he? He'd have taken that letter in his pocket to forward it at his own time through the post. And there's not a single sign he's been here. No sign at all. Letters dropped in at doors of deserted houses do not fly or walk to tables in halls. They do not sit on the dust of empty tables waiting to be found. Somebody has to put it there on that table deliberately. That much is certain. But the caretaker is the only other person with a key. Yes, but a house can be entered without a key. No, 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 I won't even consider it. It is possible that I'm not alone now. No, no, no. I might be waited for, downstairs. Waited for, till when? Until the hour arranged. At least that can't have been six o'clock. Six o'clock's already struck. Quick, lock the bedroom door. The thing is, to get out of the house altogether, to fly. No, no, not that. I have, after all, a train to catch. They rely on me, don't they? My family, my husband, they rely on me to be utterly dependable. The keystone of family life is dependability. I will not return to the country, to my husband, to my boys and my sister, without those objects I came up here to fetch. Let me see now. The chest under the bed. The leather cracked. Dust sunk in. The hinges always stiff. Now, what is it that I want to take? A set of dishes, Royal Dalton. This and this. A mice and, and paperweight. And this and this and this. A couple of bronzes, wedding presents. A birthday card from Edward. He did all the drawings and the colouring in. There's newspaper to wrap everything in. A ball of string. Oh, but this'll be far too much for me to carry, what with all the shopping parcels. I'd have to call a taxi. Oh, yes. A taxi. That's the answer. Oh, thank goodness. I will ring up the taxi now. The taxi cannot come too soon. I shall hear the taxi out there running its engine till I walk calmly down to it through the hall. I'll ring up for a taxi. No! No, the telephone's cut off. Oh, dear. I've tried this knot all wrong. 
He was never kind to me. Not really. We'll go for a walk in the garden. I don't remember him kind at all. Come here. Mother said he never considered me. Stand with me under this tree. He was set on me. That's what it was. He cold? Not love. Are you? Not wishing a person well. Promise me. What did he do? Go on. Promise. To make me promise like that. Give me your hand. I can't remember. Here. Oh. But I can remember. The 25 years since then dissolved like smoke. And she instinctively looked for the wheel left by the button in the palm of her hand. Let me see you. Take my hand. All right. Here. He's hurting me. That's so as you'll remember, right? My tunic button, right? I was not myself. They told me that at the time. I was not myself. She remembered. That August week, nothing of me was left at all. But with one white burning blank, as where acid has dropped on a photograph. Under no conditions can I remember his face. So wherever he may be waiting, I shan't know him. I haven't got time to run from a face I don't expect. I must get to the taxi before any clock strikes what could be the hour. I'll slip down into the street and round the side of the square to where the square gives on to the main road. I'll take the taxi all the way back here to the door, safe. The solid taxi driver would come into the house... ...to pick up the parcels from room to room. The idea of the taxi made her decisive, bold. She unlocked the bedroom door, went to the top of the staircase and listened down. She heard nothing. But while she was hearing nothing, the passé air of the staircase was disturbed by a draught that travelled up to her face. It emanated from the basement. Down there... A window being opened. ...by someone who chose this moment to leave the house. The rain had stopped. The pavement steamily shone as Mrs. Drover let herself out. By inches. From her own front door into the empty street. The unoccupied houses opposite continued to meet her look with their damaged stare, making towards the thoroughfare and the taxi. Don't look behind. Whatever you do now, do not look behind. Indeed, the silence was so intense. One of those creaks of London silence, exaggerated this summer by the damage of war. Nobody gaining on me. Nobody. I surely would have heard. Where her street debouched on the square, where people went on living. A woman carrying parcels. A woman with two children, one in each hand. I mustn't rush like this. They would think me quite mad. Across the open end of the square, two buses impassively passed each other. Women, a perambulator, cyclists, a man wheeling a barrow. Once again, the ordinary flow of life. At the square's most populous corner... There should be a taxi rank. There it is. Thank heavens. Only one taxi there. But this... 
although it presented its blank rump, appeared to be alertly waiting for her. Oh, please wait. Please don't go. No, wait, please. Oh. She reached the door of the taxi and wrenched it open. She threw herself inside onto the leather seat. She took in the smell of it, smoky leather. As she did so, the taxi faced the main road. To make the trip back to her house, it would have to turn. Good. You have turned. But how did you know? How did you know? I haven't said where. She leaned forward to scratch at the glass panel that divided the driver's head from her own. The driver braked to what was almost a stop. Oh! The jolt of the taxi flung Mrs. Drover forward till her face was almost into the glass. Through the glass, driver and passenger, not six inches between them, remained for an eternity eye to eye. Mrs. Drover's mouth hung open for some seconds before. After that, she continued to scream freely and to beat with her gloved hands on the glass all around as the taxi, accelerating without mercy, made off with her into the hinterland of deserted streets. In The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bowen, dramatised for radio by Christopher Hawes, Elizabeth Bowen was played by Maggie Steed and Mrs Drover by Jenny Howe. The soldier was Jonathan Keeble, father Stephen Thorne, mother Shirley Dixon and Mr Drover Christopher Scott. The director was Marion Nancaro.